0: turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 uh, beginning in verse 15. We're going to look at verses 15 through the end of the chapter. And if you're able, let's please stand again for the reading of God's Word. For this reason... and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, in these few moments together, uh, would you quiet our hearts, focus our hearts, enlighten them, as this passage says, to, to know you better to come away encouraged, more focused on the Lord Jesus Christ than when we entered this sanctuary today. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've already celebrated this morning, the main focus of Easter Sunday is to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um which is an essential truth, as we mentioned earlier, that uh, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection, we are still in our sins, the Bible teaches. But usually, on Easter Sunday, our focus is on either the event of the resurrection recorded in the Gospels, or perhaps uh, looking forward to our future resurrection, Uh, Rooted in the resurrection of Christ, our bodily resurrection, that passages like 1 Corinthians 15 speak of. But what about now? What about now in the present? Not the past or the future, but today. What does the resurrection of Christ mean for us today? Why does it matter to us today? What does it matter that Christ is risen when you see nothing but bad news all around you? And maybe in your own life, you feel like it's one piece of bad news after another. Maybe you're dealing with sickness or death of a loved one close to you. Maybe you're saying with the psalmist in Psalm 4 who says, Who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? What what does it matter that Christ is risen when your family is a mess, full of broken relationships, uh, pieces you don't know how to put back together, feels that broken? What does it matter that he is risen when you feel alone and discouraged and you've as Lamentations 3 says, and you've forgotten what happiness is? What does it matter that Christ has risen when you're struggling with sin and it feels like you just cannot make progress, spiritually speaking? I recently read an article that said, we live in the stories we tell ourselves And with regard to the difficult things that I just listed out, you know, we can tell ourselves a lot of things. And quite frankly, many of those things are untrue. I am alone. God doesn't care. There is no hope. At least in this life. I'll never grow. What stories do you tell yourself? In our passage this morning, God tells us his story through Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. It's a story, among other things, that speaks of why the resurrection matters for us today. So let's begin by looking at the motive for Paul's prayer. You might call this the backstory uh, of God's story. He says at the beginning, for this reason, which he's really looking back to verses 3 through 14, which is that amazing passage full of amazing truths about what God has done. But it really speaks, if you want to sum it up, it speaks about God's sovereign grace uh, at work in the lives of the Ephesian believers. And in other words, Paul is saying, because of God's sovereign grace. I not only give thanks, but I'm going to pray because he's sovereign. He prays for them. Now, a simple application to take away from this or an implication from this is that God's sovereignty is a motive for prayer, not a hindrance. You know, sometimes we can be tempted to think otherwise, to the contrary. You know, if God is sovereign, why pray? He's just going to do what he's going to do, right? Well, here we find Paul praying because of God's sovereign grace. And this isn't unique to Ephesians 1. There's many passages that speak this way. In fact, nowhere in the Bible do I find the teaching that prayer is somehow hindered uh, by the sovereignty of God. Rather, we are, we are encouraged to pray because he's sovereign. He can actually do stuff. He can actually accomplish things, even through prayer, as he's ordained. So that's his motive. But what does Paul actually pray for in their present experience? Notice the primary request here. We see this in verse seventeen. Is, is the knowledge of God. That's what he's praying for for the believers. He says that, you know, he's praying that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. In essence, what Paul's praying for here is the spirit would cause the lights to come on in their hearts so that they're able to know and appreciate who God is and what he has done for them in Christ. It's a prayer of illumination. Another way to put it is it's a prayer for God to fix our spiritual antennas, to be able to receive all of this wonderful stuff, all the stuff that He has accomplished. You see, the, the signal's not the problem, it's the receivers that are broken. They need illumination. Isn't this often our problem? When we read the scriptures, passages like this, full of these wonderful, overarching, even cosmic realities and truths, wonderful things God has done in Christ. And you know what? We struggle to take it in. We can't really embrace it. And we struggle to actually believe that it's true. I find in my experience, maybe you can identify, it's often the most encouraging truths from God that are the hardest to take in, the hardest to really grasp and receive. And when we don't do that, we end end up telling ourselves a different story. And we live in that story, not the one that God is telling us. Now, one practical help to take it all in, uh, is the word of God itself. Uh, Not only does God use his word to uh, tell us how he has blessed us, but it's something that he uses to fix our spiritual antennas. I'll give you one example from Psalm 19, verse 8. Speaking of the word of God, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the word of God is essential if we're going to take it in. Not only just to know what it is that we need to take in, but God uses that to enlighten our eyes. The reflex of our soul in the face of doubt should be toward the word of God. I love that passage in Isaiah chapter 8 that says, uh, to the teaching, to the testimony. When you're faced with doubts, go back to God's word. What has God said? Regardless of all the things that you're saying to yourself or tempted to say to yourself, what is God saying? Back to the word. You see, what Paul is asking for here in this prayer is beyond the natural capacities of the Ephesian believers. Therefore, when you feel like, you know, I don't have it in me to change or to hope in my present circumstance, when you find yourself saying that, pray. Pray for the enlightenment of the eyes of your heart to see and to take it in and embrace it in faith. Notice also that the main request here, as I said earlier, the main request in Paul's prayers is for believers to know God better. Now think about it, of all the things he could pray for, for the believers, health, prosperity, maybe end of persecution. That'd be a nice prayer for the believers. No, instead he prays that they would know God better. Now that that may seem on the surface like a no-brainer prayer for Christians to pray. But is it? Is that a primary thrust of your prayers? To know God better? D.A. Carson in his uh, book on the prayers of Paul, he Comments on this particular prayer saying that there is nothing more important in God's universe, both in time and eternity, than knowing God better. Paul says as much in in Philippians when he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus told his disciples, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let me just pause for a moment and just reaffirm that, you know, we only know God through Jesus. For God, who said, like, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who shows us who God is. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father, he says. In fact, you don't know God as Father without the Son. So if you're here today or watching online and you haven't trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for his perfect righteousness given to you as a gift that I would implore you to look to Christ, look to him alone in faith for your eternal salvation. There is salvation in no one else. It's Christ alone. Now, if you think about it, knowing God Again, this primary thrust of Paul's prayer. Knowing God will help you enjoy Him. Do you find yourself today, you know, not really feeling it, not really enjoying the Lord today or as of late? Maybe you've struggled with that. Knowing Him better will enable you to enjoy Him more. You know, I've always found this encouraging that the more you know about Him, the more you will want to know about the Lord. This is very much different from us. Unlike us, you will never find out something you wish you didn't know about God. You'll never become bored of God. And knowing him, if you think about it, knowing him will help you to face everything else, even the most difficult Suffering and circumstance. Why wouldn't you pray for that? Why wouldn't you want to know God more? Now, this knowledge of God that Paul speaks of is a knowledge of God for us. Okay? That's an important point. It's not merely a knowledge of God in the abstract. What I mean by that is this, you know, sometimes we can walk around with this. Notion of God that he's this philosophical idea of perfection. You know, he's, he's in another realm, you know, he's infinite, all-powerful and in all of this, but what is that for me? No, rather, the, the knowledge of God that Paul speaks of is a personal, relational knowledge. And we see this kind of knowledge in the verses that follow. As we continue on with his prayer, the primary request is to know God. But there's three particular requests that fall under that. Specific things that he wants them to know. And things we should know as well. And we're going to spend most of our time on the third one, but I'm going to mention mention each one in turn. The first is to know the hope to which he has called us. Now, Paul has already mentioned the inheritance that believers have in Christ uh, in verses 11 through 14. And when the Bible talks about our future as believers, it's always for a present benefit. It's not for just speculation about the future. It's for your encouragement today. So remember that as we think about the hope to which he has called us. You know, Scripture depicts the Christian life as a whole as, as tilted toward the future. There's always a future-looking element and aspect to our Christian life and how Scripture speaks of it. And one commentator uh, described it this way, that the Christian hope is faith standing on tiptoe. Faith standing on tiptoe. When I was probably in 7th grade, uh, we, our family had moved around quite a bit, and at this time we were living in Utah, of all places, uh, north of Salt Lake City, and at that age I was a huge basketball fan. Okay? So I begged my dad, uh, day after day, to take me to an NBA basketball game, and so one snowy winter evening during the week, which, you know, he was really taking one for the team, I think, (laughs) Uh, having to get up for work the next day, but he finally said, yes, we'll go to a game, and the game I wanted to see was the Utah Jazz playing the Boston Celtics, which was my favorite team at the time, Uh, the Celtics, and my favorite player on the Celtics was Larry Bird, and I wanted to see the legend and so we, we go to the game, and guess what? We had standing room only tickets. So we didn't even have a seat. Um, we were standing in the aisles on the second tier, uh, second deck. And I remember just, you know, eagerly waiting to see Larry Bird trot out on the floor and literally on my tiptoes. Um, but if you think about it, do we not have something? far greater to eagerly await as believers. Think about what the scriptures are telling us here. Something infinitely greater. Something that no eye has seen nor ear has heard. Beyond anything you could imagine is how wonderful our inheritance is that God has prepared for us in Christ. Is that the posture of your faith? Faith on tiptoe, eagerly awaiting his appearing. If not, pray for it. Paul does. Pray for it. Secondly, he prays that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, as I mentioned, Paul has already spoken of our inheritance earlier in the chapter. But interestingly here, he refers to God's inheritance. Think about that. God's not just the author of our inheritance, things that he has blessed us with and given to us, but God's inheritance is his people for himself. That should blow your mind. You know, often in scripture, we read of God's portion or his inheritance, and it's his people that he's speaking of. Other places we read that his people are his treasured possession. A people for his own possession. Possession. We are his glorious inheritance. In essence, Paul. what is Paul praying for then? He's praying that readers would appreciate the extraordinary value that God places on them as his very own. Now, if you're like me, you hear that stuff. That's one of those truths. It's hard to take in. And you're probably thinking things like, I wouldn't want me for an inheritance. I'm not a prized possession. Couldn't God do better? That's the glory and wonder of our great God. He calls us not because we are anything or deserve anything, but in order to bless us and to make us beautiful and holy for himself. As verses 7 and 8 of the chapter say, he lavishes on us the riches of his grace. He makes us a prized possession. God's people are described in scripture as a bride adorned for her husband. Remember that the next time you're tempted to think he doesn't love you. Or he's done with you. Or he's even disgusted by you because you just can't get it right. You're his prized possession if you were in Christ. Remember that. And then thirdly, he prays for them to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Verses 19 and following, and there's much in there that we won't be able to, to talk about this morning, but if you read the context, what is this great power that he's talking about that's toward us, that's for us? It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, it's resurrection power. That's the immeasurable power toward us. This was the desire of Paul himself. As we read in Philippians 3, that he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He's not just talking about his future resurrection, he's talking about in his life that he would know the power of his resurrection. Other passages tell us that, you know, we are, when we believe in Christ, we've been united with him in his death and resurrection. And we actually walk in newness of life with resurrection life today. Now, what does it mean to to know this power, to take this power in? Well, one thing it does not mean is that we somehow have this indiscriminate power, impersonal power that we need to harness somehow and channel to accomplish the things we want to accomplish. Rather, it's the resurrection power of God which conforms us to the image of Christ. He has a purpose that he's working out in our lives. was we read elsewhere, it's according to his good pleasure. It's not so that we can get what we want out of life. Now, here's a question to ask yourself. When you hear that, does that excite you? Does that encourage you? Or did you have your heart set on something else? You know, sometimes we can get into this false mentality that, you know, we call on God for help when we're going through difficult things or when we want something, we can't get it. And, you know, we call on him for help to either, you know, get him on our side Or, on the the more negative side, maybe we, we want to get him off our back because we think he's just, he's making things difficult for us. So, you know, what can I do to get him off my back or get him on my side? That kind of mentality. Rather, in light of passages like this, our mentality in prayer should be, Lord, change me by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to be more like him and to want what you want. And you'll find out that is better. That is better for you than anything else that you could want in your life. We read in the verses that follow that the resurrection power at work in us is far above all other powers. And that's something you could spend a lot of time unpacking. But in essence, it's saying that uh, Christ is exalted over every. Power, you can imagine, seen or unseen. Any spiritual opposition to Christ and his church, Christ is over that. And he puts it under his feet, both in this age, it says, and in the age to come, now and forever. So what's, what's okay, that's pretty out there stuff. That's kind of this... Overarching cosmic type reality and again hard to take in but here's a practical implication from that there is no sin too great in your life that can't be overcome by the resurrection power of Christ if he subdues all rulers and authorities under his feet surely he can subdue the sin in your life There's hope for change in the resurrection power of Christ. What is it in your life that you're tempted to say, you know, I'm never going to make progress in this area. The power of sin is too great. I'll just have to live with it. I'll just have to live with this sin. I can guarantee you that notion does not come from the Lord. tolerate, to live with it, come to terms with it. No, the resurrection power of Christ is greater than that. And he is able to change you and me, regardless of the sin or its depth in our lives. (laughs) The resurrection power is able to subject and subdue Satan himself. Surely, he could subdue any sin in your life. What sin do you need to trust him with? To trust in the power of his resurrection, to change in you. Now, you're hearing all this, you may be thinking to yourself, you know, I don't feel the immeasurable power. (laughs) I don't feel anything, perhaps. Perhaps. I don't feel this great power toward me. Well, you know, our spiritual senses are dull. Very dull at times. We're not tuned in to the real spiritual danger and reality at work in and around us, nor, on the flip side, the great spiritual victory and power that's at work as the scriptures tell us. One that is immeasurable and infinite. That's why Paul is praying this. This implies that they had spiritual dullness too. They needed this prayer. We need this prayer. So as you celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Christ, Celebrate this immeasurable power and ask for his power to be at work in your life to change you. Nothing is too difficult for him. Be convinced of that. And may we live in the story he is telling us today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we confess our weakness We are often dull of heart, dull of hearing. We struggle to receive and to believe these wonderful truths that we have clearly laid out for us in scripture. So Lord, we pray like Paul. We pray for our hearts to be enlightened. That we would know you better. That we would know the hope of our calling. the great inheritance that we have in Christ and, and standing in wonder that you call us your inheritance. And Lord, help us to know the great resurrection power at work in us and that we would pray and live accordingly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.